Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to West Center Baptist this morning. Uh, if you could turn in your Bibles to Psalm 125, that's where we will be this morning. Uh, you've probably already noticed if you have eyes, but I'm not a tall, slender man named Justin. I'm quite the opposite. I'm pretty stout. I'm short. But I was given the opportunity to bring the word of the Lord to you this morning, so I'm excited to do that for you. Uh, I'll probably be holding on like this the whole time. I don't know what to do with my hands, like Ricky Bobby. So we'll, be, we'll, we'll get through it. We'll get through it. My hands, if they rise, just ignore them if they're up here, please. But this morning we're going to be going through Psalm 125, and we're going to be talking about trust. So I'm going to read that here, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump right into it. Follow along with me. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for being able to gather here as your people to worship you. You are mighty, you are powerful, and we can be secure in you, God. I thank you for your grace in all of our lives that you have intervened. You have shown us that Jesus Christ truly is the one who can save us and forgive us of our sins. Father, I just pray during this time that as I bring your word, that it would come with power through the Holy Spirit. I ask that even if only one person in this audience benefits from it, that you would use it well in their life. And Father, I just pray that as we go on through the rest of this worship service, that your spirit would continue to stir our hearts to love the God we know who died for us and who gave his life for us. We thank you, Lord, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're continuing our series through the Psalms of Ascent that we've been going through. Um, and just to recap, the Psalms of Ascent were probably sung by Israelites who took their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, um, and they would literally have to ascend to get there. And these Psalms are comprised of Psalm 120 through 134, and today we are focused on Psalm 125. Um, Justin, in his sermon on Psalm 120, uh, gave a description that John Calvin had given, and I thought it was really good, and so I kind of want to reiterate that. John Calvin describes the Psalms of Ascent as different musical notes arising in succession, each psalm representing a different note, a different facet of the Christian's life, pain, distress, worship, comfort, all taking you up to God. And today, Psalm 125 will be a musical note meant to stir confidence in our heart, 
through trust in our mighty God. Because it's so easy in this world to lack confidence. I know for myself that can generally be the case. As we move forward, I want to ask a question that we'll kind of be hitting on through the rest of the sermon. What are you trusting in? I know for you guys maybe sitting in church right now, it can be quite easy to give the answer that we all expect. Clearly, I trust in the Lord. I'm here today to worship him. Where else would my trust be if not in the Lord? But is that really true for you right now? This past week, has that been true for you? Has your trust been in the Lord? I know for myself, my weeks can be filled with highs and lows that are usually the product of my wandering trust. You know, I trust in so many different things throughout the week because it just seems so much easier when it's visible, when it's in front of you. What are you trusting in today, this past week? Has it been your bank account that you've been building up so that when financial troubles come in, you will be secure because you know that you have a fat savings account? Or are you trusting in your good Christian morals that you were brought up in because they provide you with direction and stability in this life in a culture where that seems to be waning? Your trust can be placed in so many different things that will bring you into fear, bring you into doubt, bring you into anxiety and sadness. When we trust in these faulty things, when we trust in these wrong things, our life can be like a ship that is starting to sink. On the top deck right away, you might not notice a difference. You might just be gliding along just fine, but underneath, the ship is taking on water. And with enough time passing by and with enough water filling that ship, you begin to realize the reality of your sinking and panic starts to take over. We start to wonder, is God really reigning in a world where it seems like it's out of control? We might wonder, is it worth it to even continue in this faith when it seems like there's so much going against it? There's so much going against us. There's so much going against Christ. Will it really be worth it in the end? When these questions crop up in my life, there's usually one constant with it. My trust is usually in faulty things. And in this psalm, we will see three truths about God that show us that when we trust in him, he will give us a sure confidence to face all of life. The first truth, the Lord secures us. The second, the Lord protects us. And the third truth, the Lord vindicates us. So let's hear this beautiful note that is Psalm 125. Starting with point one, the Lord secures us. Verse one says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As we look at the psalm right away, it can be quite easy to pinpoint where the confidence ought to be. We see that as people who trust in the Lord, as believers, we are compared to a mighty mountain, Mount Zion to be exact. To kind of put that into perspective, Dwayne Johnson is a very confident man and he's just a rock. Here we are compared to a mountain. 
So just imagine how much more confident you can be than Dwayne The Rock Johnson. That, sh that should lift your spirits a little bit right here. We also notice that it's not just any random mountain, it's Mount Zion, which is awesome. And we'll get to that later. But what does that really mean for us, that we are like a mountain? Does it mean that we're large and bulky and have an inability to do anything? I know some days that's kind of how I feel, more often than not. But thankfully, no, that's not what he's getting at here when we're compared to a mountain. The author lists two specific ways that you and I are like Mount Zion. Just like Mount Zion is immovable, so you are immovable. And just like Mount Zion abides forever, so you will abide forever. The word used here for moved uh, is called mot in Hebrew. It usually has the connotation of tottering or falling away. And in Psalm 46.6, it's used to describe the kingdoms of this world tottering. And so imagine... Uh, someone who's lacking footing. You know, they, they don't really have balance. And so they can fall over, they can fall away. What does this mean for us? How is it that as Christians we can be immovable? I don't know about you, but if you're like me, you definitely don't feel immovable throughout the week. Little things can cause you to be angry all of a sudden. Little things can push you from one emotion to another. And that doesn't necessarily feel immovable to me. Possibly it's a spell of doubt that crops up in your faith and you begin to question, am I really immovable? I seem to be fluctuating quite often here. Here, however, our immovability is not ascribed to our emotional state or our relationships with people. This verse is describing the faith of those who trust in the Lord. Your faith is immovable. Your faith will abide forever. By this I mean you will not fall away. Your faith will abide forever. Charles Spurgeon in his commentary on the psalm puts it this way. Faith in God is a settling and establishing virtue. He who by his strength sets fast the mountains, by that same power stays the heart's of them that trust in him. Or in other words, the same God who planted those mighty mountains and established them there, also when you place your trust in him, he will establish that trust and he will bring it to completion. It cannot be moved, but it will abide forever. The benediction in the book of Jude also captures this reality for us Christians really well when it says God is able to keep you from stumbling and that he will present you blameless before the Lord. God will accomplish what he has started in you. He will accomplish what he has promised that he will accomplish. Your faith is immovable and abiding when you trust in him. As we look closer at this comparison to Mount Zion, we see that the mountain specified also carries some weight with it. The author of the psalm could have just as easily said that those who trust in the Lord are like a mountain, which cannot be moved but abides forever, and we would have understood that, got the gist of it. But instead, he uses Mount Zion specifically. And I believe this to be an Old Testament shadow of what we as New Testament believers experience 
That is, just like Mount Zion housed the temple that God dwelled in, as a Christian, when you trust in the Lord, you are now that dwelling place of God. The Holy Spirit lives in you, as 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Ephesians 1 also tells us that the Holy Spirit is our seal. He's our guarantee of our salvation. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. Our inheritance being eternal life, kingship, and heavenly treasures. It is irrevocable. The seal of the Spirit cannot be removed from you. I know some of you may not feel this truth ring true for yourself. Seasons of doubt can crop up throughout your Christian walk, and they've cropped up in mine. I've experienced seasons of intense doubt myself a couple years ago. There was about a two-week period where I was having a mini existential crisis because I asked the question, how can I know what is true? And then from there, I panicked because I didn't have an answer. And then I started wondering, how can I know the Bible is true? Is God actually real? Does all of this actually matter, or am I just wasting my time? All of these questions plagued my mind for what seemed like forever. Yet there was one thing I held on to for some reason. And at that time, there really wasn't a reason for me to hold on to this because I was in intense doubt. But in my mind, I kept saying, God, I may have let you go, but I know you'll never let me go. And at that moment in my mind, I, I seriously had no reason to actually trust that because I didn't know what I could trust. But when you go through it, like I did, you see that it was God preserving that tiny seed of faith. He was the one who was bringing me through it, though I didn't know it. And until you go through it and come out the other side, you really don't understand. That is why we need to view this immovable nature of our faith not as a subjective experience that we live out on a day-to-day life, but as an objective reality that God has given us as a truth. When you're in the thick of doubt and you feel like you're falling away, it can seem as if this truth is a lie and that God does not have you. But take heart because behind the scenes, he is holding on to you. And he will hold on to you when you trust in him. And he will never let you fall. He will never let you go. Your faith is immovable and abiding. God will not let it fail. And we, as Christians, need to remember that it's not the quality of our faith that establishes and secures us, but it's the object of our faith that does the securing. That is, it is Jesus Christ himself. You could be riding high at 100% faith one week, and the next week... Maybe you're at a 40%, 2%, maybe even a 1%, but you can be sure that God will never let that drop down to a 0%. He will hold on to you. So the Lord secures us. One of the ways the psalm sets us up for life is the wonderful reminder that we are secure in our faith, immovable like the mountains. And secure in him, we can face what comes. But the Lord doesn't just Secure us. Point two. The Lord protects us. 
Read with me in verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Here we see that just as the vast mountain ranges are surrounding and protecting Jerusalem, so does our mighty God surround and protect his people. I know that a lot of you are South Dakotans and have never left this state, so you don't know what mountains are, but just imagine large, imagine very large hills, and that'll probably get you to approximately the same idea we're shooting for here. Uh, but the mountains here depict an image of protection, specifically from outside threats. The mountains would have guarded against terrible storms, as well as vicious nations seeking to do harm to Jerusalem. In the wild, we see that when wolves are hunting their prey, oftentimes, as a pack, they will circle their prey around all sides, and they will attack it. And it's very effective, otherwise wolves probably would be extinct. But in a similar way, Christians are also facing danger from all sides. Ephesians 6.12 describes the adversaries we face when it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And again, in the book of Ephesians, if you read earlier in chapter 2, you can read that you as a Christian are surrounded by three very menacing wolves. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And all of these evil entities are seeking one thing, and that's for you to denounce Christ and for your soul to go into hell with them. That is all they want. Yet you have hope. Because while these enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, have you hemmed in on all sides, you can be sure that through your trust in God, just like they're surrounding you, God is surrounding you to protect you from them. Just as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds you, Christian. Through this imagery, God is saying something to you that's so beautiful and comforting. God is saying that you don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to lose heart. God is saying, I never slumber. I never sleep. I am surrounding you, and I will protect you just as the mountain ranges protect Jerusalem. And he will protect you from this time forth and forevermore. If the government comes to to rip you from your homes for your faith in Christ, they can't rip you from God's arms. If you have to pay with your life because of the faith you profess in Jesus Christ, you will not be paying with your soul. Try all they want. Satan and his demons can never harm your soul. And there is no need to fear the devil when you are in Christ. He cannot touch you. Continuing through verse 3, we start to catch a glimpse of a specific threat that Israel has dealt with many times in the past. The verse says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Here we see a description of a threat faced by faithful Israelites. There's a wicked ruler who is ruling Over Israel, and we get this from the phrase scepter of wickedness. Scepter in the Bible usually 
is associated with a ruler of a nation. And here it's qualified with the word wicked. And so there's a wicked ruler of a nation who is over Israel, which is the land allotted to the righteous. And we see over and over again, specifically in First and Second Kings, that this is nothing new for Israel. They face wicked rulers seemingly all the time. Um, and I randomly flipped my Bible open to Second Kings for an experiment. I don't recommend reading your Bible this way. But I just wanted to see if I would just randomly stumble on a verse. Uh, and here's what I got in Second Kings 15. In the 15th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Israelites are all too familiar with wicked rulers. And one of the dangers that's associated with a wicked ruler is that through their wicked rule, they can draw others into their wickedness. They can sway people to join their side and to work wickedness alongside them. That's the problem that the author here is talking about. He says, The scepter of wickedness shall not rest, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. So there's a correlation between the scepter of wickedness ruling over the nation and people stretching out their hands to do wrong. Looking at this verse again, the NIV translates this verse as, The scepter of wickedness will not remain on the land which implies that there's already some sort of wicked rule presiding over Israel. God may remove that wicked ruler from Israel. He may not. But to the Israelites who are going through this, and to anyone who's experiencing a wicked rule, these two truths that we're talking about would have been a source of encouragement and security. God's people can know and understand that even though they're surrounded by wickedness like a mountain range, God will protect them from it. God will protect their souls. That wickedness cannot reach their heart. And not only that, amidst a generation of wicked men, he will be faithful and preserve them through it. And so it is for you, Christian. What wicked rulers do you face in your life every day? Perhaps it's a boss at work who demands that you lie for the sake of business because it will earn them more money. Potentially it's a spouse at home who is abusive verbally or physically. Perhaps it's the culture that demands total and absolute allegiance and that when you say no, they call that blasphemy and you are chastised for it. Whatever the ruler Whatever the oppression we have in our lives, God will protect your soul from them and they can never take Jesus Christ away from you. Whether or not we share those rulers that I just mentioned, we have all experienced the same exact wicked rule in our lives at one point. Paul in Ephesians 2 again tells us that God has delivered us from the tyranny of the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. Before we are saved, we are under the scepter of wickedness that is slavery to sin and slavery to Satan. 
And through trust in God, we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. The scepter of wickedness is removed from you. And because of the grace of God, you are freed up to act righteously, to follow God, to be obedient, to experience joy and peace in the Lord. And you are protected in such a way that Satan's tyranny can never rest on you ever again. He can never have dominion over your soul like he did before Christ saved you. God will keep you. He is holding you. And he will never let you go. And his protection is sure and reliable. Even in the midst of pain and death, God's protection is like the mountains that surround Jerusalem. In Christ, we are safe. The Lord secures us, the Lord protects us, and third, the Lord vindicates us. Finishing off the psalm in verses 4 and 5, we read this. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Here in these two verses, God is telling you plainly that he will vindicate you, Christian. This is a prayer, a petition sent up by one of God's faithful for God's justice to be acted out. And the Israelites have been under this oppressive rule, and because of it, some of them have changed teams. They have seen what God was offering, and they said, this wicked ruler... If I trust in him, he won't kill me. So I think I'm going to bat for that team. And so they switch sides. They abandon God. They jump ship. They saw what God was offering and they rejected it because it wouldn't satisfy them. And these people were those who never truly trusted the Lord. For if they had, God would have secured them through that and helped them to persevere, even in the midst of facing death. The language used in these verses also paints a great picture for us to kind of visualize. Uh, When it says, do good to those who are upright in their hearts, another way of translating the word upright uh, is to translate it as the word straight. So there's a comparison between the good who are straight of heart and the evil who turn away to their crooked ways. So we have a straight path and a crooked path being shown to us here. A good question to ask here is, in our lives, how can we know the difference between the straight path and the crooked path? Sometimes I can be tempted to just think it's a moral difference. Oh, that person's nice. They don't really uh, harm anyone. They're just walking along in their life. Pretty nice, you know, nine out of ten dentists recommend type thing. But we see that it's not really a moral difference that separates them. Jesus actually tells us which path to take very plainly when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The straight path is Jesus Christ himself. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ, we can know that we are walking on the straight path because he has told us that he is the straight path. And 
to walk towards Christ is to do three things. Listen to him through reading the word, through hearing the word preached. We listen to him. We talk to him through prayer. And we follow him through obedience to what his word has called us to. This is how you, are, you know you are on the straight path. Walking the straight path in this life more often than not means being ridiculed by the world. I feel like we see that now more than ever in this time, specifically this month. We are told that our traditional values are misogynistic, harmful, bigoted, and that there's no room for them. We're called narrow-minded because we tell people the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ, Buddha, will not do a thing for you. Self-improvement is impossible because you are a sinner. There's only one thing that can clean your sins away, and that's the blood of the Lamb. And there will be many things you encounter in this life that will tell you that your faith in Jesus Christ is foolish. You may even start to question that yourself. You might start to doubt, Lord, is this all really worth it? Am I actually a fool for believing this? Is Richard Dawkins right when he says that I just believe in a big sky fairy? Brothers and sisters, on the day of the Lord, all will be revealed. The truth of the gospel will be made manifest in the eyes of everyone in this entire world. And on that day, all the struggles you met with on the straight path will be vindicated before everyone who ridiculed you. Those who hated you and called you foolish and thought of you as bigoted, thought of you as worthless Christians, they will finally see that they were wrong and you were right. And they will finally see that the God they had rejected is full of more grace, more love, more joy than any of those false gods that they had built up. You will be vindicated for your faith. So please take heart in that fact. And let's let our future vindication, that we know we will be proven right, let's let that affect us in the present. If we know there's a time in the future where our faith will be shown to be legitimate and the only true faith in our conversations with people, let's let that shine through. Let's be confident in this God that we trust in because we know that in the end we will be vindicated for walking on the straight path. It feels good to be proven right. Uh, I personally got to experience that joy recently at work. Um, My buddy Nick, who's actually just sitting right over there, we got into a uh, disagreement over a specific bar of soap sold by a brand called Dr. Squatch. And the disagreement consisted of this. Nick said the bar of soap was blue. I said the bar of soap was black. And it was outrageous how stubborn we were. We were unwavering. This is 100% black. We tried everything. We, Nick opened it in a program, and he was like looking at the hex color codes of the thing, trying to prove to me it was blue. And I was like, I was just using my eyes, I guess. And I was just like, it's black. Okay, we can see that. But we, we kept persisting. We weren't making any ground. And so I went to the only source I knew that would vindicate me, I went to the Dr. Squatch website and I filled out the contact form. 
And I said, <laughs> I told them, you really, you need to help us. This is causing workplace problems. <laughs> is this bar of soap that you are selling to your people, is this black or is it blue? And so that got sent out and we waited eagerly. And two hours later, by the grace of God, <laughs> I got an email in my inbox from Dr. Squatch. And they said, uh, they said that the bar of soap is black due to the activated charcoal being used in it. I couldn't tell you how happy I was in that moment. <laughs> it feels good. It feels so good to be proven right. I actually printed that email out. It's on my desk at home. I also want to take this time to uh, apologize to Nick for any pride that may have cropped up after that. <laughs> but it, does, it feels good to be vindicated. And I got a little taste of it, but it will, will not compare to the vindication we will experience at the day of our Lord. So God secures us, God protects us, and God vindicates us. As we get to the end here, fittingly the psalm ends with the proclamation, peace be upon Israel. This psalm is meant to stir in our hearts a confidence that ultimately leads to peace, just as it did for the Israelites in the Old Testament who were facing wicked rulers. As God's beloved children, you can have assurance. You can have assurance that when you trust in the Lord, you are saved. And you can have assurance that your salvation will be secure in him. And I know what it feels like to lack assurance. To lack assurance of, you know, am I really saved? There are some days where I wonder, God, am I really yours? Or have I sinned myself out of your graces enough to where i got to come back to you and redo everything that I've just done? And it's hard when you lack assurance. Because then you feel like you are on sand. You feel like you could slip at any moment. You're tottering. and You feel like you could fall away when you lack assurance. And you start to question, was I really genuine when I put my faith in Christ? Was I actually being true when I said, Lord, I trust you with the security of my soul? And those questions can be scary. But have assurance that when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he made a promise that he will never lose you and that on the last day he will raise you up. He has told us that. But how can I know my faith is genuine? You know, I'm kind of wishy-washy. I don't know. The question I always go to in return is, who are you trusting in to save you? When hard times crop up in this life, where are you turning? Is it to prayer? Are you turning to God because you know it's ultimately Him who's going to work all things for your good? Or do you turn to your phone because scrolling is really easy to do and it kind of just numbs you? That's a bad one for me. When our trust is in ourselves or when our trust is in anything else other than the Lord, it's understandable why doubts creep in, why our, our assurance wanes, we are weak, we are finite, we are fallen, we are foolish. We cannot trust in people because they're just as sinful as you. 
This is why God gave us psalms like Psalm 125, to remind us not only of the salvation we can have in the Lord, but of the security of our salvation provided by that same Lord. Let's put our hope in a God who secures, who protects, and who vindicates, and who has demonstrated that more clearly than ever in sending his own son as the perfect prophet, priest, and king to die in our place so that our sins could be forgiven and that when we trust in him, he will raise us up on the last day. If you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, I may not be on the straight path, I feel like I'm on the crooked path, I may be walking away from God, I would like to invite you to trust in Jesus Christ today. He offers you true security that leads to an eternity of peace, that leads to an eternity of joy and comfort and happiness because we'll get to experience him face to face. He offers unfailing protection to keep your soul safe on your pilgrimage in this life. Whether you like it or not, there is going to come a day when Jesus Christ will come back. He will be here. And do you know what he is going to do? He's going to do good to those who trusted in him. But to those who turned aside to their crooked ways, he's going to lead them away with the wicked. Trust in Jesus Christ, and you can be sure that on that day, he will do good unto you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word here in Psalm 125. I thank you that we can have security in you. We can feel protected by you. God, I just pray that if anyone here in this church today is lacking assurance, that through your spirit you would give them the sweet grace of assurance so that they can stand firm in their faith. God, I just again thank you for the sending of your son Jesus Christ so that we can know for a fact that we are secure, that he purchased us by his blood so that we could spend eternity in heaven communing with you. I just pray over this congregation for grace, peace, and confidence to be on our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, John.